void in my chest was beginning to fill with anger. Quiet, defeated anger that guaranteed me the right to be hurt, that believed no one could possibly understand that hurt. Wrapped in that hurt, I embraced the void. this void quite calming actually it's like this time the xanax took me your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it it's like i'm in a black void trying to reach the news story this concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic what is real how do you define real if you're talking about what you can feel what you can smell you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 114 of Embrace the Void, where booing is now cancel culture, apparently. I am your host, Aaron, and my guest this week wants to cancel all persons, which means we've got a lot to cover, so let's get canceling. My guest this week is Bryce Hubner. He is the Provost Distinguished Associate Professor in Philosophy at Georgetown University. Uh, his research uses interdisciplinary approaches to study the structure of human cognition, and he self-identifies as a neuro-yogacharan who digs on Spinoza, meditation, and metal, which pretty much makes him one of us. So, Bryce, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello to all the parts of this thing that are voiding. Yeah, hello to uh, Dharma's Arranged Voidwise, right? Exactly. Excellent. So I'm looking forward to this. We've got um, lots of things, I think, to talk about here in the um, Buddhist philosophy, philosophy of mind realm. Um, why don't we start out with some of the basics of, you sort of describe your work as being a, a sort of grand, not grandish, but, you know, sort of overarching project. Um, and um, it starts with, it seems like, this book, that you did in 2014 on uh, called macro cognition, where you developed a uh, theory of the distributed mind or a distributed theory of mind. However, we might want to put that. Um, what do you mean when you describe cognition as like distributed or situated? Yeah. So those are going to be two different questions and I'll mm -hmm. take them one after the other. Sure. So the book was really my first attempt to try to think through an issue that's been sort of bugging me for a long time, which is how do you get a bunch of interacting components to be unified in a way that yields something that looks from the outside like coherent agency? Mm -hmm. And on the flip side of that, the question was, how do you figure out if something looks like an agent, whether it's actually implemented by a set of interacting components that ought to be treated as a unity. So what I did in the book was came at that question from two perspectives. One was looking at sort of group behavior and attempts to think through collective cognition. And the other was an attempt to think through individual minds as built up out of interacting components. And what I did was traded those two sorts of pictures off of each other in a way that tried to yield something like a coherent picture of how minds are likely to work and how they're likely to build up the things that look like coherent agents. Okay, so you're looking at them distributed in the form of social distribution and then distribution internal to the agent, let's say, quote-unquote, itself, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, great. So I, I, do you have? can you give us a sense of, like, what your overarching thesis or conclusion is with regard to the distributed nature of the mind? How does this uh, illuminate some important piece of our understanding of the mind to call it distributed in this way? Good. So the reason I say that this was my first sort of attempt at working through this project is because in the book, at least, 
I work from a pretty traditional sort of cognitive science approach Mm -hmm. that yields something that looks kind of like a modularized structure where what you have is systems that are trying to figure out how to talk to one another in ways that build up coherent patterns of interaction between them. Mm-hmm. And I think the big take home on the individual side was that part of what yields the apparent unity is a set of underlying operations that are working through things that function roughly like trading languages, where mm-hmm. these kinds of interactions get built up through patterns of uh, sort of habituated Mm-hmm. and evolve tendencies so that they're able to pass messages back and forth to one another. So if you then take that over to the side of distributed group stuff, one of the big upshots from the book is that I think there's good reason to think that there are some cases of collective cognition that show up mm-hmm. in the natural world, mm-hmm. but they're not nearly as exciting as a lot of the people working in uh, social ontology might like to think. So Mm -hmm. the places we're likely to find really robust kinds of collective cognition are going to be in cases like ant colonies Mm -hmm. or honeybee colonies, or in some cases, uh, distributed groups of fish who are trying to figure out where to forage, where to hide, all of that sort of stuff. When you start looking Mm -hmm. at human groups, one of the things that gets in the way of building up stable patterns of interaction is that we get sort of caught up in our own internalized sense of agency in ways that leaves us decoupled so that we're not actually transforming the way that we behave in light of the structure of the groups that we belong to in ways that yield robust sorts of continuity and robust sorts of internal structure in Mm -hmm. human groups. Okay, yeah, I think there's a lot that makes sense there to me, right, in terms of like... um, you know, th- to put it in the, we're going to be talking in some of this in terms of Eastern philosophy, right? And there's this this idea of like, there's a value first in analytically explaining the illusion of a unified individual or a unified community or something like that that's being caused by, you know, these 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 sort of modular processes trying to interact with each other. Um, and I also like agree that the examples of distributed cognition that I see that are the most interesting are these rea- these very complex but still purely reactive uh, architectures that show up in like animal and, and like bugs where they're doing these these complex social rituals. It seems like um, even in these very basic uh, structures. So, so yeah, and then so tie that in with the situated stuff. It seems like because then you're you're bringing it into like why this emerges in a situated kind of format. Good. So I I think that one of the other really critical and important things that came out of this project was there's when you look at humans, one of the things that should pop out almost immediately is the fact that we're deeply, deeply social animals. There's Mm -hmm. no way that we can get around in the world without being parts of lots and lots of overlapping kinds of social groups. So the question from my perspective ended up being, if people aren't typically functioning as um, sort of coordinated and distributed units, what's the relationship between the kinds of structures that get built up in individuals and the kinds of structures that they're embedded in socially? And how does social information end up affecting and transforming individual cognition? And what sorts of social capacities does that end up opening up? And Mm -hmm. Basically, the second phase of this kind of research project was focusing really hard on questions about how to get those kinds of individual agents situated into the kinds of social niches that they end up being embedded in. So I ended up thinking a lot about how interacting systems for valuation, for example, Mm -hmm. end up being able to organize and direct individual behavior in ways that are structured around things that show up as social norms. So yeah, can you give like a concrete example? Yeah. So um, 
I guess the the place where some of this stuff came out clearly clearest was in a paper that I wrote for the uh, those first implicit bias volumes that uh, Jenny Saul and uh, Michael Brownstein put out. In that paper, what I argue is that if you want to understand how the kinds of uh, biased behavior that shows up in human populations functions, what you need to do is see that there are roughly three kinds of learning systems that are at play that are habituating us towards certain kinds of expectations. They're competing with one another. They're coordinating with one another in ways that yield differential patterns of behavior in different contexts. But mm -hmm. in order to make sense of those biases, you need to see how each of those systems is calibrated against different kinds of social contingencies. And in order mm. to see where the patterns show up and where the patterns fall away, you need to see how the interactions between those systems are shaping ongoing behavior in any particular context for a person. Because there might be some cases where model-based systems end up overriding habitually entrenched biases. And there might be other cases where habitually entrenched and well-calibrated biases end up dominating the behavior of even our most uh, uh, concrete reflective judgments. Right. So there's going to be a complexity as you have a push and pull. Um, and how does um, social allostasis fit into all of this? Because I know that's something that you're particularly interested in. That seems like that's enmeshed with these, these push and pull of these forces. Yeah. So that brings us to what I think of as phase three of my research project here. Okay. And essentially what's happened is as I've moved further and further down into the details of how the underlying operations in cognitive systems function, mm -hmm. I started to realize that we need to pay way more attention to a lot of the underlying biology in ways that people haven't necessarily been doing. So in mm. the original articulation, I use pretty standard sort of cognitive science kinds of explanations to explain how this stuff unfolded. In the second phase, I started looking at various kinds of learning systems. And now, as I'm moving to think about social allostasis, part of what I'm thinking about is how huge numbers of competing internal systems and coordinating mm -hmm. internal systems are operating together to build up the kinds of robust stabilities that allow us to cope with our social world. So there are going to be things like adaptive stress structures that are playing a critical role in how some of these kinds of processing unfold. There are going to be ways in which adjustments to hormone levels and adjustments to various kinds of availabilities of neurotransmitters are mm -hmm. shaping the unfolding of different kinds of behavior. And there are going to be ways in which the underlying biology of the human body is transforming the way that some of these coordinations and competitions end up unfolding. So if we want a fully elaborated story for how it is that things show up to us as they do from a unified perspective, mm -hmm. what we're going to have to understand is how all of these systems operating over numerous timescales, over numerous kinds of coding structures, over numerous kinds of interacting systems are building up the points of stability and agency that show up to us as sort of apparently simple or apparently unified. Yeah, maybe say a little bit more there for folks who aren't familiar with like, you're, you're, you're giving like a second or third move in an argument where maybe like, I want to make sure that folks know what the standard model might have been prior to what you're suggesting and what the major points of contrast would be for earlier versions of cognition? Good. So I would put it this way. If you look back at what went on through most of the 90s through the 2010s, much of what was going on in the philosophy of cognitive science and the philosophy of mind was organized around really straightforwardly intelligible computational operations. The mm -hmm. thought was that these things were going to be um, transactions over specifiable informational structures of a sort that could be specified in computational terms and perhaps even implemented in uh, uh, some kind of simple computational system. 
mm-hmm. what people were looking for there was something that was functionally analogous to the kinds of information processing that went on internal to a human mind. And the thought was that the only story that you needed to tell was a story about how information processing worked between different parts of the brain that were carrying out different kinds of computational operations. Well, that's that's interesting that you bring that in because I'm very interested in like the AI philosophy of mind stuff as well. Maybe this will be a little bit of a digression, but I'm curious, do you feel like the mind is doing something more than mere computation, the way that like computation theorists argue? Or do you think that it is still fundamentally all computation? It's just a very sophisticated kind in some way. That's a wicked hard question. I know. And I didn't put it on the list. So you aren't allowed to think about it for 10 hours first. Well, I'm sorry. I, yeah, I mean, I, I do have something in the vicinity of an answer. Mm-hmm. I, I think that what I would say is that if you look back at the history of the cognitive sciences and psychology, mm-hmm. essentially what you see is three large-scale frameworks. Mm-hmm. People are going to trade off in different ways between these, but you can sort of discern three sorts of possibilities. One is a possibility that focuses on the biology. And this is, for example, if you look at somebody like Pavlov, what Pavlov is interested in is the way that the anticipation of food triggers the production of insulin in order to prepare the animal to be able to digest the things that it's going to encounter. That's going to be a a biological story. And those kinds of stories have kicked around Uh, ever since the uh, late 19th, early 20th century. Mm -hmm. The second set of models are models that show up in learning theory, where people have been trying to figure out how different kinds of um, uh, learning and decision-making end up getting sculpted by the contingencies that you encounter in your environment. And those are relatively simple and well-understood computational models that are basically operating to attune an animal to the kinds of contingencies that are really important for their ongoing thriving and their ongoing vitality. The last set of uh, opportunities are things that show up in computational theory, and that's a huge tent. So it ranges everywhere from uh, uh, parallel distributed processing algorithms Mm -hmm. to really classical word sentence sorts of structures of computation to contemporary versions that are appealing to things like predictive processing. Mm -hmm. I think what we're looking for is something that unifies all of those kinds of perspectives. And the way to think about that is that the, one of the main tasks of the brain is to organize all of those underlying regulative uh, uh, capacities in ways that keep them roughly in a state of homeostasis. But Mm -hmm. it has to be homeostasis that is sensitive to change and variation. And so what you need is a computational model that helps to explain how the various kinds of learning that we go through and the various kinds of internal adaptations allow us to maintain vitality across multiple kinds of situations and multiple kinds of contexts. So Mm -hmm. I think that's basically where I would put the story. And I think Mm -hmm. that what's really important about the underlying regulative stuff, it's stuff like uh, adjusting and regulating the amount of salt in your bloodstream and adjusting and regulating the amount of water that's kicking around in your bloodstream. It's uh, adjusting your pursuit of various kinds of nutritional profiles. And Mm. all of that stuff has to be traded off against one another in ways that yield roughly stable patterns of vitality. And uh, just just one more more tiny step. So I haven't said anything about the social bit. Mm -hmm. When you look at human organisms, one of the things that happens very early in our life is we habituate to others in ways that are tied up with the regulation of our internal milieu. In order to be able to stay fed and in order to be able to have access to uh, the kinds of social resources that we need, we build up expectations 
that are ran through everything from the underlying biology to our learned habituated expectations to the top level models that we use to shift and adjust our ways of uh, interacting and acting in the world. Yeah, that's great. I think that's a really good answer. I especially agree with about like, you have to have a theory that can cover these different sort of not just sets of data, but like different conceptual intuitions and frameworks of these different theories. Um, and that, so, so you know, just to like summarize, just to make sure I got this right, sort of your your theory is an attempt to move from sort of a simplified or, or sort of one, just one of those axes, right? Just the behavioral axis or something like that to one that integrates all of these different kinds of perspectives in a hopefully sophisticated enough way that also still allows us to sort of form certain views and, and do actual work on these particular issues. Um, so exactly. Great. So then let me ask you one more one one question, because I noticed in some of the stuff that you'd written that you had some concerns as a result of this shift with uh, the use of philosophical intuitions, which is something that comes up a lot in my discussions as an ethicist. So I'm curious what your take is about the role of intuitions in all of these behaviors and processes and what the role should be of intuitions for things like ethics and psychology. In general, I'm pretty skeptical about just about any appeal to intuition. And the reason for that is basically underwritten by this whole kind of story, because I think that what's typically happening is loads and loads of ongoing processing is shaping our behavior in any particular context. When we have an intuition in a particular case or a particular situation, what's feeding into that is not necessarily just one of these kinds of processes. Every ounce of our engagement in, in the world mm -hmm. is shaped by the current state of our biology. It's shaped by the current levels of stress that we're under. It's shaped by the way in which various kinds of processing are being adjusted in light of nutritional needs. It's shaped by deeply entrenched and habituated patterns of bias. Absolutely. And when we sort of get to playing around with intuitions, we have no idea, unless we've done an enormous amount of work, what it is that's driving our response in any particular case. So I sort of initially get the the intuition behind that objection, let me put it that way, um, that like we, we have this concern that we we can't, that, that the source of this particular input is um, opaque to us and that makes us anxious about it. But I'm, I guess I'm not convinced that that means that we could or should just, just sort of do away with the use of intuitions rather than adopt a much more sophisticated approach to our use of them as part of our data that like I don't, I don't think that we can do ethics for example without appeals in some senses to our intuitions about certain outcomes or the, the ways that certain actions would involve the use of certain individuals and so you know like and I, I recognize that my own intuitions may be corrupt, and that's why we have to sort of continually be testing them, and there are better and worse ways to implement them. But I'm not, I guess I'm just not fully convinced that, I, I totally buy your model, that like they are the results of things that are opaque to me, but I don't think that means that they are useless data points as a result. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that I would say that they're useless data points. All they can ever be, I guess, from my perspective, is a starting point for mm -hmm. figuring out what the underlying causes are that lead to whatever kind of situation we're trying to think through or that lead to the production of whatever uh, intuition has popped up. So I, I'm not going to say um, never engage in intuitional thinking. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it serves as very much evidence for much of anything mm -hmm. other than this is a place to start. What about the use of like thought experiments, though? Do you tend to use thought experiments in your teaching? And do you feel like they rely on that they are, in a sense, often forms of intuition pumps? Yeah, I, 
in general, I tend to worry quite a bit about appeals to thought experiments. Uh And I think the reason is that people diverge in, in all sorts of interesting and complex ways on what pops out of various kinds of intuition pumps. I think they can nudge us in directions. And sometimes those nudges can be really helpful for helping us to think through things. Mm-hmm. But I think that the most we can do with thought experiments is push people into different ways of thinking. And sometimes that's exactly what you want to do. Sometimes you want to use various kinds of thought experiments to disrupt habituated patterns of thinking. Sometimes you want to use them to mm-hmm. open up possibilities for thinking. But again, I don't think that they can do much of anything beyond that for us. Yeah, I... I think I don't totally disagree with what you're saying. I think that I sort of accept the use of these things from a fairly skeptical perspective, recognizing that, like, you know, these are the options we have and there's no better options in a a lot of various ways. Like, they won't let us build contraptions to test these things on real people. So, you know, we do the best we can. Um, But I, I I am sympathetic to your concerns there so let's let's switch gears here a little bit let's 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 code switch since we've done the analytic philosophy side of your project because um we also are, are share an interest in the buddhist um versions of a lot of these arguments so i'm curious what all this has to do in your mind with uh you being a neuro yogacharan um, and I don't, we've not discussed Yogacara in particular on this show that we have done an episode on Buddhism that folks can go back and listen to. But do you want to explain, first of all, like what, what is Yogacara as a school of Buddhism? Sure. Um, I'll do my best on that. I think it's yeah. a, a really difficult question to figure uh-huh. out exactly what the people who get labeled as Yogacharans actually share with one another. The word, I mean, I think that that's probably a good place to start. Um, Yogacara probably is best understood as practitioners of yoga. So, and that, um, just to be super clear on that, yoga is not uh, intended in the sense of um, stretching and bending. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a way more sort of generalized practice. It's probably referring to particular kinds of meditative techniques Mm-hmm. And I think basically what a lot of folks within this school are attempting to do is use meditative practices to transform the way that their mind processes information mm-hmm. in ways that lead them, here's the super weird part, to perceive the world as though it is uh, nothing more than a dream or nothing Mm. more than a production of your own internal experience. So essentially what you're trying to do is to drive yourself into a position where you experience the way that your mind is making up the world Mm -hmm. that you encounter. And the reason for that is tied up with um, their sense that the way that we encounter the world is shaped by numerous, numerous kinds of underlying patterns of habituation, Mm -hmm. which lead us to encounter the structure of the world as having um, things that are stable, that look like they're permanent, that look like they're um, uh, uh, just as they should be, and that distorts our ability to sort of get a handle mm-hmm. on the underlying causal story of what leads us to perceive the world in that way. And that leads us into situations where we end up acting in ways that perpetuate um, problematic patterns of conduct. This is all very, very fascinating to me right now because I was just, in my grad class, I was arguing with the professor about... Um, moral luck and belief in in free will and like him and he's quoting from nagel here right essentially was saying no we we can 
it, it's for sure the case that I will continue to believe in free will no matter how convinced I am. And and I don't know if you agree, but I think that the concept of free will is fundamentally connected to the idea of the independent self that Buddhists are pushing back on when they're trying to make individuals aware of these these underlying causal forces that you're talking about. Um, so I'm curious, first of all, do you think that people can get into the place that the Yogacharans are trying to get into where they, where you sort of see the matrix in that sense and no longer perceive yourself as this independent um, self acting um, freely from all of these determinations. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of complex questions there. Uh I think that you can definitely get into a place where you experience the absence of a self. Mm -hmm. I think that lots of people get into that sort of situation um, and not just people who get there through meditative practices. Um, There's loads of ways to be pushed into that kind of situation. That's just a place where minds like ours can go. Mm -hmm. I think that it's also possible from inside that perspective to encounter the things that are showing up as your thoughts Um, I Mm -hmm. I mean, as thoughts, as actions, as unfolding according to their own causal principles. Mm -hmm. And I think that from that perspective, it becomes pretty clear that the idea of free will is something that you're just not going to find once you're inside that kind of perspective. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean there's not agency. And I think that Mm -hmm. one of the really nice things that I like about the Yogacara perspective is the recognition that agency unfolds through your manipulation of patterns of habituation so that bad habits get weeded out and good habits get entrenched in ways that shape your forward-looking behavior, but not in a way that requires positing anything like a unified will or a unified faculty of judgment or Uh anything that is going to sort of answer to hunches about what it means to be a free agent. Do you think that to to live in the world, though, in that kind of state, there is still some level of attachment that has to be there as a motivating factor? Maybe it's a a healthier kind of attachment or something, but you're still, you're going to feel connections in ways that sort of pull you back away from that kind of view from nowhere perspective? Yeah, I, I mean, I want to be clear that I don't think it's really a view from nowhere. I think mm-hmm. it, what you end up with is a radically, radically situated and contingent mm-hmm. unfolding of causal processes. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that the crucial thing to notice is that even if the representation of self is something that ends up falling away. That's not going to get rid of all of the aspects of your body that are continuing to regulate your ongoing behavior. Mm -hmm. Those things have to be there. I mean, you have to, in some sense, continue to drive towards vitality. And because of that, you're never going to drop out the complexity of our underlying mental lives. But what Uh you can start to do is become more uh, uh, responsive and aware of the way that different kinds of underlying causes are shaping the way that your behavior unfolds. And you can start to introduce strategies that shape which direction those uh, uh, capacities will unfold in. And would you, I assume, would probably give a similar answer for like concerns about value nihilism or moral nihilism that might come about as a result of this flipping the script that we we still have all the same kinds of motivations for doing the right things in various ways yeah so the there i think that one of the really important things to remember especially from within the yogacara framework is that the one of the core aspects of this sort of project is the cultivation of bodhicitta. That's Mm -hmm. the drive to sort of bring about the reduction of suffering for all beings. And it's the drive to act for the benefit of all beings. So Buddha mind, right, is what that means, I think, right? Translation. uh, Awakened mind, something in that general uh, vicinity. Um, 
So I, I think that what you're aiming for is replacing the kinds of drives that might have led you in problematic directions with those kinds of drives for bringing about benefit. And as you work on that, you're not just trying to eliminate or you're not just trying to see the world causally. That's mm -hmm. part of it. And you're doing that sort of recognizing the causal structure of the world to drop out problematic forms of reactive attitudes, for example, um, and to prevent those from intruding on your interpersonal behavior. But at the same time, you're cultivating an awareness of what it takes to bring about benefit. That's right. I remember this, this is basically a kind of virtue theory is the way this sort of cashes out in the Western sense, right? That like Vasubandhu is kind of a an Aristotle character in a sense. Do you feel like that's going too far as a comparison? I, so I don't really know what to say when it comes to those kinds of comparisons. Mm -hmm. I think th I think there's something quite different in some respects that's going on in the um, various kinds of Mahayana uh, traditions. Mm -hmm. And at least part of it is a transforming of moral phenomenology. It's basically mm -hmm. shifting and shaping the way that the world dis is disclosed to you in its moral structure in ways that lead you to act in the right ways. So it's not necessarily the sort of building up of the virtuous habits in the way that somebody like Aristotle might think. Mm -hmm. It's instead shifting and shaping the way that the world shows up to you so you get to the point where your actions will unfold of their own accord in ways that accord with sort of a, a bringing about a better world. Yeah. Or do you want to aim at uh, individual and collective liberation is another way to put that. Right. Do you want to explain a little bit of the, like the psychology stuff that the Yogacharans are known for that distinguishes it from like my Lord Nagarjuna's kind of Madhyamaka? Cause I think there's, there's talk of the storehouse and the seeds that I thought was really interesting when I first learned about it. Yeah. So in, in some ways, I think there's not an enormous amount of difference between somebody like Nagarjuna Mm -hmm. and somebody like Asanga or Vasubandhu. Mm -hmm. They're both really concerned with the kinds of distortions that come about because of conceptual pro proliferation and because of our tendency to mistake conceptual proliferation mm -hmm. for an accurate depiction of the world. I think that one of the things that Nagarjuna does is he just tells you to stop it. <laughs> and that's kind of the end of his project. <laughs> It's like, yeah. I can show you that all this stuff is unintelligible. Stop it. We're done. Quit it. I, I think that what happens in the uh, Yogacara school is they take over the underlying psychology that comes from the Abhidharma. So they have really complex depictions of what kinds of mental states emerge and what kinds of mental states we're capable of being in. And they work out ways of characterizing that so that you can track what kind of mental state you're in at any point in time in some sense. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they take that sort of story, which sort of is an alternative, I think, in a lot of ways to our common sense, belief, desire, psychology that we're habituated into. It's offering a much more fine-grained analysis of what mental life looks like. Mm -hmm. They take that and they hook it up to a story about um, what's called the storehouse consciousness, mm -hmm. which is the place where all of your karmic seeds are stored. So essentially what happens is every action that you engage in ends up generating a seed, which in the right conditions will blossom into a mental state that has some of that kind of character. Hmm. And what is, I think, really distinctive about the Yogacara school is the way that they think about the role of storehouse consciousness in the production of our experience. And all of that is hooked up through habituated patterns of action and mm -hmm. habituated patterns of engagement in the world. So they're going to tell a story about how that stuff 
is anchored through um, beginningless time right. to patterns of distorted reasoning. I think that from my sort of neuro yogacara version of this, what we end up with is a story where karmic traces get left behind over the course of biological and social evolution in ways that shape the structure of our world and shape the structure of our bodies. Mm -hmm. So that as we end up acting, we're already situated in those deep and complex networks of evolutionary and social histories. But every one of our actions from that point forward, from the moment we're born, um, and probably to some extent before that, is building up habituated expectations that will lead us to encounter and act in the world in ways that are going to end up leaving more seeds both in our own minds mm -hmm. and more seeds in the world that will shape the possibilities for action for anybody else that's in the world that we inhabit. So, so it's this constant process yeah. of dropping seeds, which in the right conditions will generate mental states, which will have some kind of complex structure. And they think, mm -hmm. just to get all the way back to um, how this relates to the uh, Madhyamaka sort of picture, they think that once you see this, you can start to think through those underlying causal structures. And you can see that the things that show up to us as apparently simple and unified mental states are mm -hmm. actually the result of this complex network of interacting processes, this complex network of causes and conditions that because of the situation we're in generates a particular kind of mental state. Once mm -hmm. you've got that, you can work on sort of hammering away at changing the structures that give rise to problematic mental states. Sometimes that requires focusing on yourself. Sometimes it requires focusing on the structure of the world that you're embedded in. And that's why all of this stuff leads, in some sense, to practices that have to be anchored to both individual and collective liberation. Because the only way to break down those structures that leave us habituated is by building worlds that are organized in much more productive ways. Right. So just to put some concrete examples again on this, uh, for example, for an individual, the thing we're talking about here could be something like PTSD from some bad experience they've had where if something triggers their past experiences, they get very angry or anxious or something. Or from a like biological level, you know, a seed could be our habituation towards fight or flight in various kinds of forms and various circumstances that these are the kinds of things that can blossom into action just to sort of take it in from a sort of mystical kind of sounding sense to a more modern biological evolutionary psychology kind of sense yeah exactly and then the other part of that that's going to be really important is your habituated expectations that are anchored to patterns of social categorization Mm -hmm. are going to end up generating those same kinds of seeds. So your tendency to classify people, for example, in racial terms is going to be built up through patterns of racialized engagement that mm -hmm. shape your ability to track people in ways that partition human populations, in ways that identify some groups of people as races and others as non-races. Mm -hmm. So you don't you wouldn't go so far as to believe in some of the more sort of or I'm not sure if you would um, the more like farther out there versions of reincarnation than that. Do you feel like they were ever pushing for something like that in some of the traditions or do you feel like it was always meant to be this sort of purely causal, um, you know, sins of the father kind of um, version of karma? So I think it would be really hard to read the classical Buddhist texts and take them seriously mm -hmm. if you drop out rebirth, mm -hmm. especially within the Mahayana traditions where what you're committing to is to being reborn until you bring about the liberation of all beings. Right. If you're, and I, I mean, more importantly, there are meditative practices where what you need to do is get into the position where you recognize that everybody that you interact with at some point in your past has been your mother, your brother, your sister, whatever else. Right. Those sorts of things, I think, depend on really taking the idea of rebirth seriously. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that for at least these classical folks, 
I think that it would be a huge mistake to drop that out of the story. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably hard for most of us to get into a situation where we believe in that kind of stuff. Right. Because if you're growing up in uh, the U.S. or Western Europe, you're probably not being habituated into a world where you encounter things uh, in ways that look like rebirth. Mm-hmm. So all of that said, I think that the story is always causal, even if it's a rebirth story, mm-hmm. because you have to remember that there's, in some sense, not a self to be reborn. All there is is flows of causal processes that end up generating and stabilizing around the seeds that get left behind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're probably going to think there's way more continuity in those uh, inner life streams than I am. Right. But I think that the right way to think about it is for us is the patterns that are left in the world by past decisions that shaped our evolutionary and social world. Mm-hmm. For example, that organized um, neighborhoods in U.S. cities in ways that are highly racialized. Right. That's something that's going to shape in an ongoing way our discriminative capacities, and it's going to shape the judgments that we form and whatever else. Yeah, you can think of it um, sort of like you know the legacy of a really horrible person, and like it leaves a hole in the world that continues to sort of shape the world around it after it's gone, after they're gone. Exactly. Um, yeah, so that's great. Um, that was really um, interesting. And you mentioned in their meditation, which is something that I wanted to get to uh, as well before we run out of time here, um, ironically enough, uh, why, why can't we just be reincarnated and continue to have this conversation <laughs> forever? Um, so what kinds of meditation do you find valuable? You mentioned the like, put yourself, you know, realize that you've been connected to everyone and every perspective kind of meditation. Are there versions of that kind of thing that you find valuable or what kind of things work for you in your life? So right now I've gone through, let me answer that in two phases. Mm -hmm. I've gone through lots and lots of different kinds of uh, meditative practices at different points in my life. Right now, mostly what I'm doing is stuff that is uh, 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 tied up with noting where you're just trying to become aware of every mental event that Mm -hmm. unfolds um, Mm -hmm. and as quickly as possible tracking every one of them that you can possibly track, um, getting more and more accurate, more and more focused and attentive on the ways the different kinds of uh, mental events are unfolding um, as you meditate. Which is, which is distinct from just staring at your own thoughts as you have them? like. Yeah, so, um, for example, if you're sitting in a space and um, you hear a noise or your attention is drawn to uh, an ache in your knee or if your attention is drawn to this hardness or softness of your seat or if your attention is drawn back to uh, the way that your breath is unfolding, or if a thought comes by, any of those, it's registering and noting what it is and where it's unfolding Mm -hmm. and getting better and better at doing that. Do you do the, like, I notice this thing, but I don't, I'm not, I'm not this thing. I sort of don't identify with it kind of way of thinking, or do you literally just watch the thing? So I've only started this uh, uh, practice fairly recently, and the standard way of doing it, which is what I'm doing, is just trying to identify every one of the mental events that unfolds. Uh huh. Have you noticed any particularly interesting mental events that were sneaking under the radar before? Well, what I will say is that I feel like a lot of my awareness of different sensory phenomena Mm -hmm. is shifting a little bit. So um, I'm getting way more attention to the things like the leaves on the trees as I'm walking in and out of campus um, than I typically had before, because I'm registering those things that are coming past me. I'm uh, as I'm walking, becoming more aware of the way that my feet are hitting the ground and the way that they feel um, as I'm walking. And Mm -hmm. all of that stuff is sort of shifting the way that I'm encountering things slowly. Um, tastes are changing just a little bit. Um, and I assume they'll do more and more of that because essentially 
um, what you try to do with that kind of practice is make it a pervasive part of your day-to-day life. It's not something you just do on the cushion. Um, right. You practice it on the cushion, but you also try and stay in that space. And it's really hard. Um, I mean, this is, uh, if you think about the word um, that commonly gets translated as mindfulness, it's mm-hmm. the word for remember. And essentially what mm-hmm. we typically do is forget to pay attention to how the world is affecting us at all, all these points. So I'm trying to work on rehabituating that a little bit. That's pretty worth it, though, if it's turning into like Spider-Man, though. I hope it does. <laughs> spider, spider, Atman, I think, right? Spider, Atman. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it is challenging, I, and I like that I um that point about remembering when you know when I talk about doing mindfulness with folks, I often talk about it in terms of that like you are just trying to sort of bring awareness back to every single moment. That even that is such a kind of Herculean task. It seems like. Um, and has such dramatic implications that just focusing on doing that is gets you a long way. It seems like. Yep. So, so that's great. Um, now, at the same time, my understanding is you you're also a uh, large fan of metal. Is that Indeed. is that right? Right. So yes. I'm curious how to, how we tie all these things together at the end. Do you ever meditate to metal? I haven't. And I've been trying to decide whether I want to do that. I think that there's probably some kinds of super atmospheric black metal that would be super fun to meditate to. Mm -hmm. One of the Mm -hmm. things that I I have done uh, pretty recently is um, I've tried to meditate to uh, uh, Charnatic music. Um, So classical uh, uh, South Indian music. Oh, interesting. And one of the things that's super awesome is working through that same kind of noting practice, mm-hmm. but doing it where you're paying attention to this multi-structured unfolding of musical sound and mm-hmm. tracking what's going on in each year, um, what's going on with different instruments, how you're getting these apparent experiences of things drifting and moving. Um, if you're, if you've got good headphones on. So I see no reason not to sit down with some brutal black metal and see what <laughs> unfolds on the other side of that. Do you have any particular recommendations for things that you feel like would take people to some interesting places? Some void metal for us? Yeah, so I think probably my favorite thing that has come out recently that's in that sort of general vicinity mm-hmm. is the Panopticon record that came out <laughs> uh, maybe a year and a half ago. Uh-huh. Um, which uh, it goes back and forth. It's it's a double rec- record. And the first one is brutal black metal. The second is like Americana. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's just a beautiful exemplar of nice atmospheric space shaping sort of metal. So I think that mm-hmm. would be super fun to sort of play around with. Plus, um, it's named after a voidy philosophical concept, right? The Panopticon. It's a good one that we exactly. haven't covered yet. Yeah, so this has all been great stuff. I'm curious, just as we wrap up here, how do you feel like all of this connects to like the hard problem of consciousness? We've been talking about self a lot here, the connection between sort of the illusion of the self. I've had you know Keith, Batton, Keith Frankish on earlier to talk about illusionism. Do you lean towards like an illusionist view do you how do you come out on the the issues of like mind body connection questions so i've never been able to figure out exactly what the hard problem is supposed to be okay i i've spent a bunch of time trying to argue with people about that and trying to figure it out and i can't get it i do have very strong illusionist sorts of tendencies and i think that one of the things that pops out of the sort of social allostatic framework mm-hmm. is a recognition of the density and the complexity of the underlying processes. Mm-hmm. And one inclination I've had, it's actually the very first paper I ever presented at a conference when I was a grad student, was the thought that if we do much more careful phenomenology, and get much more precise understandings of the underlying hardware, the mapping gets so much easier 
and the problems start to evaporate because mm. we can sort of start to make sense of how the components that structure any of our immediate experiences are mapping onto the underlying operations that mm. are driving those kinds of states. I think that we're, we're just really bad at doing both the phenomenology and we don't have a fully worked out story about much of the underlying biophysical stuff. But I think once we get those stories worked out, I think the problems go away. So I think there are loads and loads of what somebody like Dave Chalmers would call easy problems. Mm-hmm. And I think that we've got a long ways to go to work those out. But it's not obvious to me that there's any problem left to explore once we've worked all of those things out. So do you then, I guess I'm curious, you think, do you, this is jumping ahead to our lightning round a little bit, but do you believe that phenomenal consciousness occurs I won't, I won't, I won't, you know, privilege this by saying that I have an experience of it because then I know we get into conversations of what the I means, but like, are our phenomenal states being experienced? So I think that it would be really hard to deny the existence of experience. Okay. I don't think that commits you to phenomenal consciousness or to qualia. Okay. I think that what, what there are is loads and loads of really complex underlying causal processes that generate the kinds of effects that they're designed to generate. Mm-hmm. I think okay. that's the end of the story. Yeah. Fair enough. As long you know, like as, as long as we're not full on denying the um, experience of experience, I'm pretty much on board for like any conversation of how this crazy thing actually works. Like you know. Uh, I don't have any dog in the fight pretty much after the conversation of, um, but we are still experienced. Someone, something is experiencing something, right? So, and, and, well, not even things, right? God, I, this is the problem with doing Buddhism is that you just have to start, you stop using nouns at any point. Like it's just passive verbs for the rest of your life. Yep. Uh, okay. So unfortunately we're running short on time, but I want to get you through the lightning round. Are you, are you ready for that? Do you want to give us any final thoughts on that one? Or in any of that, uh, I think I, I think you left it in a pretty good place there. Yeah, we'll leave it there. Yeah, great. So, uh, I believe you are familiar, but just in case, right? I'm going to give you a list. You're going to tell me whether the thing is real or not real. You don't have to define yep. what real means, so it doesn't matter, right? Yep. Okay. Uh, are you ready? Yep. Is your readiness real? Nope. Okay, great. Good start. The external world. Fake. Colors. Super fake. Phenomenal consciousness. Double fake. Qualia. Faker than fake. (laughs) Free will. Oh, super, super, super fake. Man, we covered a lot of these in this discussion today. (laughs) Selves. Fake. Personal identity. Fake. Mm -hmm. Genders. Fake. Races. Fake. Species. Fake. Morality. Fake. Rights. Oh, nonsense. <laughs> On stilts? Um, uh, only if you generalize them. Okay, fair enough. Uh, yeah. A priori knowledge. Oh, fake. A posteriori knowledge. Fake. Propositional attitudes. Oh, super, super double fake. Ideas. Hmm almost real but still fake (laughs) uh modalities fake gods fake society fake numbers fake abstract entities oh double fake Mm, fictional characters fake holes fake chairs fake sandwiches fake science substantially less fake than other fake things okay okay natural laws oh double fake back to fake okay uh beauty fake and that that pretty much does it so i I have to ask you right as as someone on the not spook very very not spooky end of the spectrum what do you what would you qualify as real is there anything on the list that you feel like is real or anything on any list that you think is real? 
I think that what's real is the things that we immediately experience. Mm -hmm. I think that those are probably momentary particulars. Okay. And Dharma's. I, I, should, I should add Dharma's to the list, shouldn't I? Yeah, Dharma's um, come pretty close to being what I think are real um, okay. under the right sort of way of thinking about them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I probably believe in some kind of karmic traces. Okay. All right. Well, Bryce, this has been a lot of fun. Um, do you want to let folks know where they can find your stuff? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at DistributedCog. Good follow. And What's that? I said good follow. Um, and uh, you can find me on my personal webpage, which is BriceHubner.Weebly.com. Okay, well, thanks so much, and thanks for putting another nail in the coffin of belief in any kind of self or anything. Cheers. <laughs>